very excited to share this episode with you all. Cornelius and I met many years ago when we first became business partners, and since then, we've become lifelong friends. I constantly advocate for the power of storytelling, and Cornelius McGrath is a world-class storyteller. He's also a forward-thinking entrepreneur who believes in community-driven enterprises and has figured out a way to craft a lifestyle for himself that allows him to do what he loves and get paid for it. He is truly a lifestyle entrepreneur. Not bad for an econ major from London. Enjoy the episode. What do people do when they retire from college? As it turns out, just about anything they want. The pressure to score the perfect gig by graduation is intense, and many students are stressed about what's next. So we set out to discover stories of the unlikely paths people took on their way to success. What did they do with their majors? How did they overcome setbacks? And what would they tell their college selves if they could? The ladder of success is not always up. At times, it's sideways or even down. But it always leads to where you're supposed to be. And the most successful people in life were once confused college students trying to figure out where they fit. We're all on our own journeys of career discernment, and regardless of how you might feel now, at the end of the day, you're probably okay. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm so excited to host the guest of today's first podcast, Sir Mor- Cornelius McGrath. Cornelius is a young ND alum, big thinker, creative mind, the founder of Everyday Entrepreneur, and more importantly, uh, one of my closest friends in the world. Thanks a lot for coming out today, brother. My pleasure, man. It's good to be back. Yeah, it is, right? Yeah, it's been a minute. I you mean, love South Bend. I love South Bend. It was my my home for the best part of four years. Um, it's wonderful to meet you, Olivia, as well. And uh, yeah, I haven't been back since 2019. So COVID's kept me away, which is a shame, but got a lot of fun memories of this place. It's where I grew up, became a man. Well, and because of COVID, it also feels like you haven't been back for a decade. Honestly, it hasn't. And it's crazy. I had my first had my first trip to Nick's patio this morning uh, and I wasn't at Thieve last night for all those listening. Um, and yeah, that was a bit of a shock because when I was at school, you know, Nick's patio is the, the place you went after a Thursday night, not a Friday morning for a meeting one of your favorite professors. But it's like clockwork. You know, you come back, you have a nice lunch at Brothers. I'm lucky to have an amazing friend in Jared. So I'm always at the Mrazinski mansion. And uh, yeah, like I said, South Bend has got so many special memories in my heart. It's where me and my girlfriend met. Uh, it's where I've cried, laughed, made amazing friends. So just a lot of emotions. And it's great to be back in a building that didn't exist when I was here. Uh, although I was in Duncan Hall, I didn't get to experience this wonderful place. So shout out to David and his family for, for making this happen. And I think it's a great segue into kind of how I wanted to just start. And and you and I have had so many, you know, uh, for the listeners that don't know, Cornelius and I first met by actually working together a couple startups ago. And I'll never forget the first time I met you. I think, you know, when you meet somebody brand new, there's always surface high-level questions you ask. And I remember asking you what you studied at Notre Dame. And do you remember what you told me? I said Notre Dame. Yeah. Why don't we start by you talking about that? Well, it's because my, my GPA probably wasn't good enough to talk about. But, um, yeah, I, I'd like to think that... Most of the kids at Notre Dame are majoring in what I call the minors. So they're very focused on a, a set of domain expertise, be that their major or, you know, tests they need to get right in, in a certain semester. And I can tell you four years out now, you don't remember any of that stuff. Even the stuff you told yourself at the time, I'm never going to forget this. I think what you remember is the relationships and, and the feelings that the people at the place give you. So when I arrived here, I didn't understand Notre Dame. I, I told you guys in the kind of pre-recording that I literally sat in my room on my own the first football Saturday of the 2013 football season. And you can imagine off the back of the 2012 season how preposterous that must have seemed <laughs> to all of my, yeah. like, okay, we just went unbeaten, so you're going to stay at home till 2.30 <laughs> and walk to the stadium on your own. And I left Duncan and I kind of walked up the back there on the Glen Fields and I was thinking, what are all these cars doing here and why are people sitting in their cars? And I think it was after that Saturday that I knew there was something about this place I didn't understand. And if I was going to survive, you know, 8,000 miles from home, I'd have to study it. And it became the, the best major I could have had. And I think I was the only one that majored in that in the class of 2017. Yeah, that is amazing. And I think as we've already kind of established, it's an impressive thing. It's a pretty courageous thing, really, to at the ripe young age of 18, just pick up and move to an entirely new continent and start school at this unfamiliar place. And so uh, I'm hoping that you can share a little bit more about maybe that first football weekend and those early experiences that you've talked to Jared and I, Cornelius, 
about how that initial adjustment to Notre Dame culture really prompted you to reflect about what you wanted the rest of your four years to look like and how you wanted to personally brand yourself as a Notre Dame student. So can you talk about maybe some of those earlier experiences, some people you met early on that really shifted your mindset moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so it all starts, you know, August 19th, 2013 uh, was the day I left home. And uh, I remember it vividly. Uh, we all packed in my family's Volvo XC90, not as big as the American ones. There's, you know, six of us plus suitcases, so it's tight. My best friend and my girlfriend at the time drove together to Heathrow. And, and for those that know London, I live in North London, and, and London's great, but there's no way to go north and west. You have to go in to come out. So we drive over there 40 minutes, and that's the weirdest 40 minutes I've ever had because you're thinking, I'm not coming back here, at least for three, four months. So we've gone to Heathrow. I've checked in. Then the tears begin. I'm saying goodbye to my mum, saying goodbye to my, my siblings. And it's weird tears because you feel tremendously sad. And I said goodbye to my girlfriend at the time, and we had been dating for three years. And it was just a bit mad. And so I remember we, we sat in Carluccio's, which is like a, you know, a Italian coffee shop in London. I made my way through security. Me and my dad hopped on the plane, and I probably sobbed the whole plane journey. We arrive in O'Hare. It was like planes, trains, and automobiles. You know, that wonderful film. And we get on the bus, go to the rental car spot, pick up a nice little rental car. And, you know, that was really before satellite navigation had made it onto the phones, which sounds crazy to me. So me and my dad have got no two working phones. We didn't think about an American phone plan. And so we just followed the directions to Chicago, make it down to South Bend in peace. I don't think we stopped. Uh, I thought the car was so cool because it was a Lincoln with one of those automatic boots, uh, which you guys, what do you guys call that? Trunks? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you, you call it trunk. <laughs> yeah, is that a trunk? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, but long story short, I'm probably boring the audience by this point. Uh, we get down to campus and we get onto campus and we take a left coming in the bookstore off Notre Dame Ave and we were going to Siegfried and I'd never been to Siegfried before because that's where they were doing pre-international student housing and we got so lost, man. We got lost from the bookstore to Siegfried, which is hilarious to share now. <laughs> Me and my dad are super lost, like over by the grotto thinking god almighty this place is massive luckily we meet one of the marshals he sends us over and as i get out of the car actually there's a car that pulls up in front of me and it's this fellow by the name of brian mukaya uh, brian's a phenomenal guy for anybody listening from kenya and uh, brian had just arrived at notre dame student housing from kenya at the same time as me and we were both manchester united fans he ended up later being in my dorm so you know set the bags down and and that was kind of the beginning um I got my T-Mobile phone plan. I got all, made sure all my vaccinations were in place. I moved into Duncan early. But I think the thing that I really remember from that time was my first day of class. Um, and it's actually a man I shared breakfast with this morning. So my first day of class, I walk into the Bartolo. I think it was like a 940 class, 950 class, whatever it was. And I sat like eighth row. I was like, I don't want to be a, a hardo and sit first row. But like sitting all the way in the back, I feel like I'm not stating my intentions correctly. And uh, this booming figure walks up. I'm thinking, bloody hell, what have I done? I've, I've just walked in the door. Have I done something wrong? And this guy goes, are you Cornelius McGrath from London? I go, yes, sir, I am. He goes, welcome. I'm Professor Patrick Griffin. I like London a lot. And I'll be calling on you for every single English history question this semester. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, what happened? How's this guy know my name? We've got, got 50, 60, 80 people in this class including Mike McGlinchey, who's now at the 49ers. And uh, yeah, that was the beginning of, of my love affair with, with Professor Patrick Griffin, and I was just enthralled. I mean, that was just the best class. I had an amazing TA called Sam. I proceeded to get every single question that he asked me that semester wrong. But um, we actually just shared a breakfast this morning, and um, he is the first Notre Dame professor uh, ever to win a Hashworth Fellowship. So he is effectively now going to Queen's College for a year. It's a fellowship that you don't even apply for. You just get told you won. And so those are my earliest memories to answer your question is, is being seen, being felt, uh, being valued. And, you know, that relationship with Professor Griffin is now eight years old and, and I feel like it's just beginning. I think it's a great story because that's the one thing that's always fascinated me about you. At a young age, you discovered the power of, kind of the cast of characters that was here on campus all along. And it's people that you have to work hard, I think, to find, even though they're hiding in plain sight. 
Tell me a little bit about Tea Fridays. So when we were in Duncan, I became renowned for effectively saying I don't drink coffee, but I'd love a cup of tea. And unfortunately, I couldn't find PG tips for like the first year. So I was stuck with Earl Grey. And just for all those listening, I'm afraid Earl Grey English tea is not English tea. Um, <laughs> and if you want a good cup of tea, you can come over to my house next time you're on the other, the, the other side of the pond. But yeah, I, there was an event called What I Learned at ND that this wonderful man, Michael Wider, uh, who was the, the, the head of kind of student president's council at the time and also the head of Duncan. And uh, Michael effectively brought seniors back in Duncan to talk about what they learned at ND. And so it was a senior telling a freshman about all the do's and don'ts. Super simple, really powerful. And Michael was like, look, I've heard you've been hosting uh, tea before you've been hosting something else on a Friday afternoon. Uh, would you consider actually making tea for everybody coming to what I learned at ND? And I was like, absolutely. So I remember the first event I did this for, it was for a guy called Brendan Moran's What I Learned at ND. I had no idea who Brendan was. I'd met him. He lived in, in 1B. I lived in 1A in Duncan. And uh, Brendan just got up, gave this great presentation. I can't remember anything he said other than, if you're interested in learning more, I'd love to get a coffee with you. Thinking, what does that mean? So I do it. I was like, I'm so enthralled by this bloke. I'm going to go do it. So I went up to him and I was like, hey, I'd love to get a coffee. He goes, great. He goes, how's Monday at 7.30? I'm thinking, okay, I've got nothing better to do. <laughs> so we roll over to Lafon. He's already there. He's probably been there since 6.40. And he's like, what can I get you? And I'm like, uh, he's like, can I get you a cappuccino? I'm like, absolutely. I just said yes, because I didn't know what to say. And I remember the first question he asked me was, how can I help you? And I told him about, you know, the homesickness and, and the adjustment and how difficult I'd found it to do well in class. And he was like, look, I can't, I can't cure your love life or, or make you any less homesick, but I know some cool people that are, are building a company and, um, you know, I won't get to that straight away, but the rest was history. And, and Brendan is a, a great friend to this day who actually now lives down the street from me in Chicago. So it's powerful. Brendan's tremendous. Um, same sort of mentality. And I think actually embodies what you get a lot here with the Notre Dame network is how can I help you? It lends itself to a great discussion on how you view, you know, things like social capital, personal branding. Because I feel like talking to younger students coming into Notre Dame, I don't know that personal branding is something that they've really thought about. Or if anything, maybe it's tough to understand what that even means. So I'd love to hear your take on social capital, personal branding, and what that means to you and what actually, more importantly, what it meant to you when you were freshman here on campus. Yeah, I'd be honest, I don't think I knew what it meant. So if there's anybody listening who's, who's just come back to campus, it's, they're thinking about football season and they're thinking, bloody hell, I've got nothing to do on Saturday. You know, think about that for a second and, and think about the people that are doing things on a Saturday, right? Think about all the societies that development run, all the institutes. Think about the players, the coaches. Each of those individuals has a, a unique story and a perspective on this campus and that's been crafted over many years. And so you shouldn't compare yourself on day zero to someone who's who's been here for a decade but yeah I think very naturally I was called Cornelius and I had a British accent and so immediately that meant I was known even when I didn't remember meeting people they knew who I was and so that was always a superpower that I felt like I had and so I think at the time it just meant that I was known before I knew someone else and that comes with its ups and its downs but people knew who I was and they knew I was different and I was always interesting so you'd go around the room, let's say you go to a party or something and everyone's doing introductions, it would often get stuck at me, right? You'd go, oh, I'm John, I'm Matt, and I'm Cornelius, I'm like, where are you from? And it would be London, and then they wouldn't even go to the rest of the room. So that was always interesting, and, and what I learned to say was you can never be a prophet in your own land. So in London, I was just regular, you know? In fact, it's like, oh, you're cool Cornelius, you know, bugger off, you think you're better than everyone else. But in America, it was different. And people enjoyed going home on full break and telling their parents that they met someone from London. And I just thought it was the funniest thing, that this thing that I didn't control was the most interesting thing about me. But I will say that that hits a ceiling at some point. Like at some point, you are more than just a man with an accent. And so I think where I found it difficult to transcend my peer group, I found real interest in using that brand to basically befriend people at the university that spent all their time and effort trying to recruit individuals like me. And I think that goes to playing to your home advantage, right? If I'm a European student, I can probably connect with European, Latino, 
global staff members, faculty, board of trustees, way more easily than Americans. And I think that that's what it meant for me is could I now use the fact that I've hopped halfway across the country to then leverage the Notre Dame network for the best of its resources. So a great example of this is my freshman year summer, which I'm sure gives people a lot of anxiety, especially now when you can watch the play-by-play on social media. Remember, Uber wasn't on campus when I was a freshman. We still queued up at Main Circle and tried to get taxis. and Eagle cab. Eagle cab, baby. (laughs) You know, that's what you did. (laughs) But long story short, like, I remember getting to campus and really thinking hard about, okay, what do I do this freshman year? And so I was like, what if I could take classes at the London campus with all the sophomores, but I'll just stay at home. So I'll save a bunch of money and I'll just get the training every day. So that was like the first example of how being from London I had to go all the way to South Bend to then get to see London through a new, a new set of eyes. And that was the brand at the beginning is I kind of did things by the rules, but because I had a global perspective, I was able to use the university for the best of its resources. And, and actually what was really funny is that Father John at the time in that five-year plan, his focus was on ND International. So that was a great example. And then later going on and, and befriending everybody at the Nanakvig Institute. John McAdams became a great friend. It became really easy to take all of my aspirations, put them through a European lens, and then get them funded. And so I think that's what it meant to me early on. I think if you had said to me, what did social capital mean to answer the second part of your question, I would have had no idea. But I think it would have got to the root of, I can do things that other people can't because of where I'm from, how I sound, how I make people feel. Right. And the feel part is absolutely everything, I think, to relationships. And so I think everybody listening should be like, and you can just do this exercise. Go and ask your three best friends right now what they come to you for and how they make you feel when you have those conversations. That is what your brand is. And then take that answer and think who else on this campus might want to feel or hear things like that. And that's what I found is almost every single professor wanted to know how I looked at what they did how they built things, the students they had in their classes. And so it kind of became a carte blanche calling card. Like people would probably just enjoy my take on the fun Starbucks. How does this compare to, to London coffee shops, right? Like I was kind of lucky in that domain. But I would argue people from the South, people from rural areas in the United States, they have that same brand. It's probably not as sexy because everybody loves the crown. So I was lucky on that front. But use it. You have no idea. Go and look at the university. Who's from your hometown? who's never been to your hometown and really wants to go. Like there are breadcrumbs there that you can really leverage. And that was one of the things that I, I did early on. And I think it helped me craft something really compelling. And the great thing about a university is as soon as you get one win, they all start rolling down the hill because administrators, you know, the board of trustees, they're looking to invest in the students that are going to take it to the next level. And so getting those early wins with study abroad, with the research grants, that really set me up for success, especially when I wasn't finding success in the classroom. Yeah, that's a great story. And that's another topic that I wanted to touch a little bit about. And you've talked about how your GPA wasn't the best of the best. And I think a lot of students know that GPA isn't everything, but that's still a prevailing and like underlying stereotype that it's hard to look past. So can you talk about how you looked beyond GPA and what that looked like for you? Yeah, so just, just so everyone knows, I got a 3-1 my first semester. I think numbers are important, so I won't beat around the bush. had a decent semester. wasn't world-class by any means. And I know most people have a dip first semester, but it's usually a 3-6, 3-7 dip. It's not a 3-1 dip. And the big reason why that was, to be really honest, is in England, if you get 80 or above, you get an A. In the United States, if you get, if you get a 70, you fail. So that's just a big thing. Like I got into Notre Dame getting A's, but I never got 92 in my A-levels, ever. I was an 88s, 87s guy. So my peak was already there. But ultimately, you get to the end of first semester. Now everyone's talking about internship. Suddenly, you know, this thing, you know, called the Career Center exists and go Irish and there's all these cool events happening. But the first question you get on those applications is what's your GPA? So I would say, honestly, Olivia, that it wasn't so much that I looked past it. In fact, I couldn't look past it for a while, but I was forced to because once you get one bad semester, it's really difficult 
to kick it up. And and the, the way that most kids get around it is they declare a different major and then they work hard from sophomore year on and they have a really good major GPA. But that wasn't of interest to me. Um, I was an econ and psych double major with a minor in education. And I just felt like, okay, I'm looking at the individuals that are doing really well in these classes and I don't think I want to be them. You know, these are some of my best friends in the world and, and some of my best friends in the world that graduated summa cum laude from this university in difficult degrees, chemical engineering, economics, they regret how they spent their time. So at that point, though, I'm thinking, God almighty, I've really got to butt my ideas up. And so I felt like, okay, let me keep this number okay and then let me have a really good story to tell instead about what I've done with my other time. And so I just felt like if I could be my way through ND, I could reinvest all the hours it would take to go from a B to an A+, which in classes like Econometrics is a big, big time investment. And let me invest in the relationships with the people who are actually going to be making the decisions. And that did me really well, but I really want to state this. That was not some vision I had. That was forced upon me. And for a while, I was kind of sad about it. I was thinking, wouldn't it be just so much easier if I could have had this awesome number or maybe studied something easy and done really well? And that played on me for a long time. But now I look at it and it was like, no, you were meant to have that moment because now you can give other people permission to relax. And what I hope to see and be is actually, you know what, if you do what I did, you're going to be, you're not just going to be okay to, to use the name of the show you're going to be bloody brilliant because you're going to be doing things that nobody else at the school is doing. And I think that there are a lot of individuals that are irked by me who worked a lot harder in my year because they think I was working for those things that he has and I didn't get them. The other part of the story is if you do these things, you get this. That's dangerous. Um, that's really, really dangerous because there's a lot of other kids at a lot of other schools that you don't even see beyond your dorm, your class were probably outperforming you. And so I just was always uncomfortable with this number. I just didn't feel like it was me. And I think I had a swagger about me, which is like, I didn't come 8,000 miles to be defined by a set of grades through a teacher I didn't get on with. Like I'm going to take control of my own narrative and make sure when people hear my name that they've met me and that they can feel, you know, the magic. Yeah, I like love this idea of investing in other experiences that are going to be equally valuable and could you maybe speak about one that you think is particularly salient in your mind like what is one experience that you think you wouldn't have gotten if you were in clubhouse studying all night long as opposed to actually like investing in some of these more meaningful connections with people does yeah. one particularly come to mind absolutely so one of the first things that i ever worked on in notre dame was was tedx UND. So I was a huge fan of Ted coming into to Notre Dame, obviously. And I was so excited to learn that, you know, Notre Dame had an individual who had actually gone to a TED conference. So the secret with TEDx is you have to have somebody at the university who's paid the $10,000 ticket to go to the real event. And then when you've done that, you can host a TEDx. So there was this amazing individual, Paul, who's no longer here, who had done that. And I got an email from the library actually saying they were looking for uh, student student members. And I'm sure there were many members on that team who had great grades. Don't get me wrong. But I was able to go the extra mile, right? I really led that team. I worked hand in hand with a wonderful individual called Tara at the library who's still here. She's absolutely kick-ass. I'd, I'd highly recommend everybody find time for a coffee with Tara. Watching her orchestrate 50 stakeholders at a time around an event that had never happened before but was going to be kick-ass was wonderful. And she put me in the driver's seat. Like she would stop the meeting and go, I'd like to know what the students think. And that was so empowering. And so what that led me to was this amazing individual called Thomas White. Thomas White was a senior when I was a freshman. He did this incredible talk about living with Tourette's. And I just thought it was incredible. I mean, Tom told stories of waking up in the morning, throwing his iPhone down on the floor 13 times, swearing in class, trying to make friends, date. His story is incredible. I highly encourage everybody to go watch that on YouTube. And so because I was working, I got to be in the green room. So I got to meet all these speakers. And Tom was actually the individual that I sought out um, first semester of my sophomore year. And I told him about what I'd done over the summer in London. He goes, you must meet Professor John McAdams, who runs the Navig Institute. And I walked into Professor McAdams' room and he says, well, Tom White thinks you are, you know, the bee's knees. So 
how can I help you? What do you want? And I said, well, I'm applying for this uh, European internship and service grant. I'd won an internship at the IEA for my sophomore year. It's the Institute of Economic Affairs. It's the most famous free market think tank in the world. This is when I still thought I wanted to be an economist. And because of Tom and because of TEDx and because of Tara, I got into Professor McAdams' office and then I won a $5,000 grant to basically go back to London and just travel and study and think. And so if I'd had a great GPA, I probably would have been baited by the sophomore year, you know, internships at a consulting firm, or I might have tried to go and work, you know, for a different company. But because that wasn't available to me, and I'd really had the opportunity to put all my resources into TEDx, I wasn't able just to put on the event and put it on my resume, but I made it a point to befriend all of the speakers, one being Mayor P, um, who obviously now has gone into amazing things. And yeah, because of Tom, I met Professor McAdams. Because of Professor McAdams, I got this grant. And then just to fast forward the story, I ended up winning another grant the next year. I won the best grant of my entire class. And, and that piece of work, of research, actually landed me in the Financial Times uh, as an op-ed writer two weeks before my graduation day. So the compounding of the curiosity as a freshman of just saying, I'm going to commit to this. I'm going to stay close to Tara. I feel like that's going to do me well. Ended up landing me in one of the best business publications in the world by the age of 21. And again, we can talk about what that kind of catapulted. But it was all because of that curiosity. And I have a litany of other examples that build on each other just like that. But that one's really pertinent and is something I'm incredibly proud of. Thank you for sharing that. Um, of course. I think a common thread in a lot of these stories is how a lot of these connections have built on top of one another and one connection leads to another. And that's something really exciting. But I think that's also something that a lot of students may be hesitant just because they're not sure where to start. So like, did you feel that when you were making these connections, you were receiving like encouraging feedback and that it came naturally? Or could you just speak a little bit to that aspect of everything? Yeah, I just, I think you just have a feeling. I think students shouldn't overthink this stuff. It's very obvious when someone thinks the world of you. You can see the body language. You can see the feeling. I knew Tara had my back, and I knew that was going to be a great thing. And that actually ended, which was really tough, actually. Um, but then with Tom, I had a trust in Tom, you know, and, and I felt like he had got up on stage and he had shared his story. He was a student that I really, you know, admired for that. And he was actually friends with Brendan Moran, which is hilarious, right? It's funny how all these great people are connected. And so I just feel like you turn over rocks. And I think you've got to be honest enough to, to say you don't have it figured out. Because I didn't have the GPA, there was nothing about my character that indicated I had it figured out. I remember going for coffees with the kids that got the top jobs at the top consulting firms. And they were like, look, I really like you and you're, you're easily the most charismatic, but that number just isn't going to get you in. Those, those people didn't have my back. But the individuals that had gone and done things differently, who were thinking about, let me say, curating a life rather than just a profession, those are the people I lent into. And yeah, I think for students, you have to be very vulnerable. And not everybody I met for coffee with loved me. You have to recognize that. I'm just telling you the best hits. So it wasn't as nearly as easy and as enjoyable as it felt. But retrospectively, it's something you feel incredibly proud of. And I would say if, if students, getting back to my first claim, which was you know, 99.9% of ND students waste their time. They're majoring in the minors. How many of you listening are investing in things that aren't going to matter in a year or two years or three years or four years? I promise you the knowledge you're learning in these classes is not going to come into use. Take it from an individual who is four years out. So I'm basically in my second collegiate career. I am a senior of young adult life. The only thing that I remember is the relationships and how to create change how to share ideas, and how to give other people the credit. Those are the things I really took away from this place. And so, yeah, once I think you get a, a knack and you get a brand for being vulnerable, doors open. Because why would, why would someone like Tom or Tara or John McAdams put me in front of the people they want to impress? They'd only do that if they feel like I'd take the opportunity. And I think, again, when you come 8,000 miles, people are like, okay, this guy's not messing around. He's here to play. And I think not a lot of ND students have that, have that edge. And so while I was an outsider at the beginning, I realized it was that hustle that really separated me from the crowd. It's hard. You know, class is important. 
tests are important still. There's a curriculum right to get through. One thing you said to me the other night that I thought was really powerful was taking yourself out of that for a second, understanding that obviously GPA is not everything in the world, but it can't be bad either, right? But you had said something to Olivia and I both, and you said students should ask themselves more, what can they do now that they'll never be able to do again? Just expand on that a little bit. Yeah, I think, look, you are... You are 18, 19, 20, and 21 once ever in your life. And everybody listening has had the opportunity to do that in the same space. And so I promise you there are plenty of graduate programs where you can study your your butt off and, and do really well. You will never be 19, 20, 21 in South Bend again. And that's a moment in time that you really have to make the most of. And I don't think that studying in a library and again, I studied. Let me, let, me, let me just be really real. Like I studied, but to what extent? And so, yeah, you should really think about the things you can do now that you can never do again. So you can never email somebody again and say, hey, I'm a second, I'm a second semester sophomore and this is what I'm doing. Or I'm a second semester junior and I'm thinking about doing a senior thesis. Or, you know, the wonderful photographer that we have in the room, Isa, hey, I'm a, I'm a double major who's getting ready for a thesis show. You are only that person once. And in those moments, you are able to open amazing doors. And much like, I showed you that relationships compound, opportunities compound in college very quickly. Like there are windows of time that you have to hit. You know, you cannot declare a major junior year for a reason. I'd sneaked in with a minor at that point. So I think you've got to think about like, what are the things I can do now? And what are the things that can wait? I think the studying can wait. I think the anxiety around getting A's on tests can wait. What cannot wait is you making the most of every individual that spends their time here. Football weekends, you cannot waste those. There are only six a year, but how many individuals listening, you know, are just up at 7 a.m., 8 a.m., socializing till 3 p.m. without even taking the time to realize that some of the most powerful people in the world queue up in their private jets on a Saturday to be here. And actually, if you just hung out in the Morris Inn for two hours from 8 till 10, you could meet all of them and they'll all help you. So I think it's that type of stuff is you will never be a junior on a football Saturday who can afford to get up, get a few coffees, sit in the Morris Inn, watch the board of trustees come in on a roundabout and share your story with them. Because when you go and you graduate and you become busy, I promise you, you won't get that time again. You won't just be able to scoot to Duncan and then get changed and then go out and have all the fun. So I think I'd love to see students thinking about and asking questions, like ask questions of your rectors, your advisors, your professors. Who are some of the best individuals that you've seen come through this place? How did they spend their time? You know, because there are individuals that have been a Notre Dame a lot longer than me. And everything you're hearing from me is, a, is, a, is basically the best of what I've heard from other people. Right. And that's, that's the edge. So that's what I'd love to see kids doing because the studying, you can do it at grad school. The anxiety, that comes in a million ways once you have to start paying bills. But the freedom. And I think early, if you do that stuff, People are like, sorry, how old are you? And yeah. then they're like, okay, wow. Yeah. Like this, this person's here to play. So use the age to the advantage, but don't feel like you have to have all the answers. And yeah, do something different. Like I, I guess that's always been my, yeah, I'm the kid who decided to go to America and put himself through, through SAT study at age 16 on top of A-levels. Like I've always liked being the contrarian thinker, doing things different. I don't be going to the same bars as everyone else. Why? Because then everyone's telling the same stories. Like, I want to be the first person to do that. So that's how I think about it. And it might be hard for people to think about what their version is. But if you're stuck on the answer, go and ask the person you most admire in, in, in the ecosystem. I promise they'll probably have a better answer than me. When you and I worked together, yeah. we had often talked about the, the demand and stress of growing a startup and how it's hard to find the wins. So when you're, when you're trying to grow a company, uh, you don't necessarily see the wins right away takes a while and you have to work hard to figure out what a good day of work was compared to a bad day because you could always feel like you did bad there's only so many metrics you could even try to calculate to show that you're doing good and i think this is another example where it's hard to measure the roi i can see when i'm a student i can see how studying hard yield yielded a good result i got an a i see that roi what i don't understand is how is it now that if I reach out to this alum my sophomore year and we have a great coffee chat and then it goes away and I maybe took time away from studying or being in the library to do that, how do I 
justify the ROI? I'm not sure you can. I'm not sure you can. I got to be really honest. Like there's a, there's a great deal of high side bias. And like I said, it's a feelings game. I think everybody listening should be listening to their energy. Look at your energy. Look at your week through the lens of your energy. Where is it highest? Where is it lowest? Like highly recommend a, a piece of uh, content by a guy called uh, Tony Schwartz. This is in one of the classes that I run now. And it's called Manage Your Energy, Not Your Time. Um, and Tony's a, a wonderful individual. Funnily enough, he actually wrote uh, Donald Trump's uh, you know, biography, which is hilarious. But um, he effectively went on to basically say that and prove that top athletes, top consultants, top people in business, when they think about their energy, they take naps, they eat well, they exercise, their performance goes through the roof. So yeah, if you're questioning the ROI of a coffee meeting, I'm with you. I still do that today. I've got no idea where things are going to lead. But I think you get better at the gut feel. I think you get better at the energy. And you can look at somebody and you can say, okay, I just met with, I don't know, what's a good example for me? I think this is great. When I met with Alex Kosher, like I remember Alex Kosher, student body president, uh, Rhodes Scholar, was ND's first Rhodes Scholar in God knows how long. Uh, he was also a national champion. I remember I saw Alex out my freshman year, I had a coffee with him. I had no idea where that coffee was going to lead. No idea. Um, I asked him how he went to fever every Thursday as student body president. Um, but Alex gave me to Steve Reifenberg. Steve Reifenberg gave me to Professor Kellenberg. Steve Reifenberg is, is one of my longtime friends. So I don't think you can know, but look at how those individuals treat you in the 30 minutes. Like I wasn't going around meeting with recruiters for 30 minutes in La Femme, right? I was writing long emails to really interesting faculty members that I had heard were making this place what it was. And I was finding a way to spend two hours at their office and just listen and soak it up. And I think it's only when you look back and you think about, okay, if I need something, who do I call? That's when those people come into motion. So I ended up um, hooking up with Alex probably five years later in London. We actually did a podcast together in London at the South Bank Center. And we went and saw this amazing play together. And I think it's the, the most listened to podcast episode ever that I've ever had on my show. And I think because I didn't go in there looking for ROI, Alex opened up. He was like, wow, this kid's just curious. Whereas so much of the networking that goes on as a Notre Dame student is transactional. It's like, you might be able to help me get this job this summer. That's why I'm meeting with you. Do you know how obvious that is? Like, I remember when I started writing for LinkedIn, there was a kid that hit me up and said, oh, I want that position. He goes, how do I get that? I go, that's a completely wrong question. I said, I don't think you should apply for it. So people are, are thinking about ROI. I get it. Your time is sensitive, but everybody's got time in their schedule, I think, for five to 10 hours of coffees every single week because not everything you invest in is going to pay off. But I would say you'll get better at knowing. And if you just ask the question, who should I meet with next? I'm interested in these things. I'm thinking about these questions. Who should I go to? People are smart. They know who you should be in front of. And then very quickly, you can get a filter. I would always take a Steve Reifenberg coffee, whoever Steve told me to reach out to, whether I believed it was right for me or not, I always reached out to them. Other individuals, you learn, ah, they probably don't have the best taste. They don't really understand me. So I think it gets better. But if you only start with 30 minute transactional networking coffees, where you ask a bunch of boilerplate template questions about what it's like to work at that company, you're going to get boilerplate template answers. And so I would, I would start in the parallel lines. Like one of my favorite questions to ask is, what pictures do you have hanging in your office right now? And can you tell me the story behind that? It completely snaps people out of their shell, gets people talking about things they love and trust. And then all of a sudden, if an ask does come around, it feels really natural because I've actually taken the time to get to know them. And so I think a lot of people are rushing into these coffees. They want the, you know, the reference or the resume check next week. Whereas if you start building relationships with a freshman or a sophomore, you've got the rest of your life to figure out how you can be helpful to that person and, and how they can be helpful to you. Yeah. Well put. That is such a great point. And I want to ask also, because I think one thing you've shown that you are very skilled at is sustaining these relationships. It's over these extended periods of time, building meaningful connections with people. And I think that a lot of times as a student, the challenging part isn't having a quick phone call with someone. It's not grabbing coffee with someone. It's the part that comes next where it's like, 
how do I follow up? Do they want me to follow up? Do I want to follow up? And all of a sudden, it's this question mark of how do I proceed? So do you have any advice as to how you have managed to develop and cultivate these relationships over longer periods of time? Yeah, I think it's curiosity. If you're not interested to follow up, don't follow up. Like it gets back to the energy thing. Now, there are times where, okay, wow, that was an amazing meeting. Now I got to go to the bookstore, buy some handwritten cards, figure out who can buy me a bottle of champagne and drop that off at the Morrison before 10 a.m. tomorrow morning because I've just met with a trustee. Like that stuff can be tough when everyone's trying to get you to go out and have a few drinks and go to dinner. So look, there, there can be some complex in the follow-up, but I think if your energy's there, it should be easy. It should be an outpouring of, this is what our time together did today for me. These are the things I found really impactful about our conversation. These are the things I'm thinking about. And based on what you told me, I thought you'd be interested in this. And so I was a writer at ND. And so all of my writing was often a great catalyst for those types of things. And what you'll find is when you're a writer and you're talking about your writing, everybody else has got something they're working on. And so it was an easy way to be like, okay, I'd love to look at that. Would you mind sending me that? And then I'd actually go and read it. And then I get back to them and tell them what I thought about what they sent me. Sounds absolutely simple. It is simple. It is not easy because I think a lot of individuals aren't actually reaching to the people they're curious about. They're reaching to the people that think are going to get them to the next level. And it's a complete reframe around that, right? It's a complete reframe. And, and again, I don't know what it was about me that just allowed me to get that. It was probably the early individuals I surrounded myself with with which include jared but that's how you sustain something and and i think you you'll be so surprised at just what i'm not going to say a quarterly check-in a check-in once every six months once every 12 months there are certain individuals that i don't send christmas cards to that i haven't spoken to to two years but they know when i email them that is for a very specific purpose like my curiosity has been piqued i'm getting back in touch with them for a reason and I can remember everything that they told me. Like I would take voracious notes, put them in a folder. I've got a folder on my Apple notes with basically every single person that I've met. I took notes when we did the pre-recording. You guys say great things. I'll take those. And then when I'm on plane journeys, usually I'll just try and compile those notes around themes. So when I come into the next meeting, this actually happened recently. Someone goes, did you take notes from the last meeting? How did you remember this about me? And I was like, oh. Well, I just reviewed that when I was in the car here. And now you think the world of me when really all I did was take a note, put it in my phone and then read it for five seconds before I came in. So I think that's it is like check your energy, make sure your curiosity is aligned and then remember the stuff people tell you, please. Like if I have to tell you something twice, then I know you weren't listening. But if you come back and you've done the thing that I asked you, well, now you're in a different league. And again, it's just that compounding, right? It's just taking yourself up the levels, right? A C, a, someone who's doing C plus relationship building, to use the GPA example, is just doing the transactional meeting. Someone who's at the B level is maybe following their curiosity. Someone who's at the A plus level is watching their energy, following their curiosity, taking the notes, remembering the things they're told, and then actually executing on the damn thing. And so once you become renowned for that, people become very, 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 very trustworthy of you. And it's kind of a self, it's kind of like a self-perpetuating cycle. Because I did that for Steve, he knows I'll do that for the next person he introduces me to. And that's self-reinforcing. And I think that's why I've been able to get, you know, paid for the things that I do because it all comes from trust. And people know I'm actually going to follow through. So they, they don't think about telling me things unless they know that I'm actually going to put them into practice and you know, just like in the reverse, that can happen in the reverse. Even if you meet the right person, but they don't feel like your energy's right, your curiosity isn't right, they don't know your intentions, they can easily shut down. Jared will be the first to tell you that, right? Like there's so many students, but there's only so many that come in the right way, frame themselves up the right way and ask for help and allow themselves to be helped. But once you've asked for help, you have to go and put it into practice. You, you can't keep this self-perpetuating roundabout of misery. And, and that's where I am, you know, pretty honest is like, yeah, I did the thing. Um, I'm not here talking about all the things that I heard in meetings and, and thought were interesting. Um, I took them and, and I did something with them. So does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. That's such a great mindset to have about it. Yeah. 
you've had a lot of success and I would love to know what your favorite failure has been. Oh, Jesus. Say, here come the hard questions. Right? <laughs> yeah, this is the this is the part of the show that Cornies didn't know was coming. Yeah, I think my favorite failure, I, I think, um, so I did a McCloskey business plan competition uh, my junior year, and I, I love McCloskey. It was amazing. And I, and I got to pair up with a couple of amazing individuals. Uh, one was my, my good friend and, and former colleague of Jared and I, Evan Doney. Evan, if you're listening, you'll remember. Our Saturdays and Sundays spent just refining this pitch. He was like the the hard taskmaster, and I was the the British pitch coach, I guess, or the the British presenter. And uh, we had a really cool business. Um, it was called AI squared OT, so it was the art, artificial intelligence to the power of the Internet of Things. So the the I was squared, and it was run by this guy Andy Downard. Andy was a, a chemical engineer at, at Notre Dame, and he had actually gone to Caltech uh, for a PhD and was published in Nature, I think, way before the age of 30. It's an absolute world beater. And um, when you're in McCloskey, if you don't have an idea, you can get paired up with alumni. And so actually my buddy, my buddy Zach Himholt, who was technical, got paired up with Andy. And he came to me and said, I'd love to pair up with you on this. But then Zach had to drop out for personal reasons. So Andy just said to me, hey, do you want to do this? And do you have a buddy who might be involved? So I called Evan. I was like, let's do this. So we worked on the pitch. We got through the first round, second round, quarterfinals. We made it to the finals. And so I think finals day is like 16 teams. You pitch down in Giovannini Commons at the bottom of Mendoza. I don't know if it's still called that. We got to the final eight. And then you went into Jordan in front of all of the board members of the Gazo Center of Entrepreneurship. And you got to pitch. And I felt like we had a wicked pitch. And if you, if you check my Instagram out, I've got this amazing picture of me like in this suit, just arms spread with the big screen behind and it was like my first moment and I specifically remember uh, two friends of mine putting it on their Snapchat stories and saying this kid is going to be a Fortune 500 CEO one day so I'm thinking we've smashed that yeah you're already like well we've done it we've won yeah we've won like we had great (laughs) traction we had gone and got a couple local jewelry stores signed up if you actually googled our product it would work so the technology could basically show you if you wanted a pair of jeans it could show you what store locally had those jeans. And then what you could do is you could go into the store, use the code, and you would get the same price that was on Amazon. So it was called reverse showrooming. And the idea was if you drew people in from the digital to the physical, when I went to the showroom because I saved money, I'd end up spending more. And so it was pitched as a, as a way of using basically sensors to kind of drive the purchase decision back into the retailers. Super cool technology. didn't end up going anywhere. But yeah, we didn't win. We came eighth and uh, we got taken to a very posh area of um, the Graduate Center, which is very, very close to Mendoza. I'm forgetting the name of it right now. And we got taken to the room where I think, you know, only six, seven figure donors get to go. And I was furious. I was absolutely furious. And um, I told a lot of the board members that I was furious. And I was like, I can't believe we didn't win. (laughs) I remember this. And uh, yeah, I guess I was a bit too honest. Um, and I can't really remember what I said about the competition and, and who I felt had won, but long story short, I got an email the next week from one of the women that had poured her heart and soul into making this thing. And she had been really kind to me. And she just said, you know, I heard that you had, you had told several board members about your disappointment about not winning. Um, and you know, these board members, again, I, I didn't understand at the time they're being flown in. This is the thing they're spending money on. So I think they were really disappointed to hear kind of my thoughts about kind of the competition. And I think I just learned there in that moment about just how gracious you have to be in defeat. And that was all anybody could remember about me, right? So even though I'd done all this hard work and and had done this great pitch and people thought I was the the bee's knees at 11 a.m., by 9 p.m. on that Monday, I had to respond to a very tough email from someone who I really liked. And it definitely changed our relationship. Uh, we were never the same after that. And um, it was a real shame. And and uh, I didn't mean it. I didn't. I was just upset. You know, I'm a young 21-year-old kid who, who wants to win. And I felt like we deserved to win. But no one remembered that. They just remembered this guy that didn't win, who was maybe a, you know, a bit annoyed at, at the competition and, and was saying some things about other teams. And yeah, you know... Um, that was that was a tough moment, and and I think was a was a real kind of wake up call around. Look, if you're going to be 
doing these things and investing in these relationships and, and being in these public places, like it goes both ways. You can't just ride the highs and then, you know, call BS when it doesn't go your way. And so that was a, a big moment for me and, and was my first failure in this endeavor, right? Like I was just hitting every green light and I thought, God, we're going to win McCloskey. We're going to win all this money. And then I'm going to go on and be this great entrepreneur. Then come Monday morning, I've got the loss to deal with. And now I'm like, bloody hell, like these administrators probably think I'm a bit of a spoiled brat. And it, it just, it just drove the, the point home and it, it ended up becoming a really sore memory, actually. I, I know. Cause how long ago was that? That was probably, it was either 2015 or 2016. It's 2015, right. the spring of 2015. I've heard you tell that story, not just to me, but in several settings, which is how I know it sticks with you, which is how I know that uh, that had an impact, um, which I think speaks to your character in the end. That still bothers you. It does. And, and what I would say to these students is, look, it's so easy to get annoyed at the people that work here. Like, take it from me. It's super easy to get annoyed with them. You know, you think they're slow, they're bulky, they're bureaucratic. And I think I would just say on the other end now, having been a lot older, you don't think that way. You know, these people work their asses off to make sure that you can have a great experience. And I, I forgot that. In the heat of the moment, I forgot that. And I forgot what it was and the platform I had and the fact that I even knew Andy and I could be at this school and in this competition. And it happens to the best of us, right? But what I did on the Monday is I put my hands up. My mum and I crafted the email. And I apologized. And then I went to see this, this administrator the next week. And I said, I'm really sorry. You know, I, I really wanted to win. I felt we did enough to win. Um, and so I'm sorry I acted that way. So I would say the big change for me and the thing I learned from that failure was everybody's trying to make this place great, but everybody has their own definition. So start to think about how change is made and kind of take your ego out of your own ideas. This is something Steve Reifenberg taught me. And if you can do that, you will get great things done at a university. If you are willing to basically give away all the credit, listen to other individuals, work with stakeholders, even if they might be tricky. And I think this is one of the things that Tara did so well. You will achieve a great deal. It will always take longer than you hope. And I think that's one of the things as a student is you kind of feel like you have this ticking time bomb. You're like, I've only got four years. You know, I've only got four years. And, you know, now you look at these, you know, the administrators, the people that run this place, and, and they're going to be here for decades. So your six months is... A, a drop in the window and you're going to come and go. And so I'd say if you really want something, commit to it over the long term, try and be patient um, and tell that story. Like tell that story in the interviews, tell that story through your LinkedIn profile, tell that story in your conversations. Like that's a great story because every single person who's going to hire you knows exactly how that feels like. I actually thought I was going to be penalized for not winning McCloskey. When actually, I actually think that the failure story is way more interesting, and that's why I love the failure resume. I think it's yeah. it's a great it's a great it's a great concept from Ferris. And even unpacking this now, I realize how much McCloskey shaped the rest of my time at school. And then I was able to look administrators in the eye and work with them, and say, "Hey, I know how tough this is for you. You know, you've got your job, you've got everything that comes with it. You're trying to create change. How can I actually be a vehicle for what you want to do?" as opposed to just coming in and, and asserting all of my ideas. And by reframing that, I got way more of the vulnerability, way more of the honesty, and I was actually able to latch my ideas onto them and then give them all the credit. So I got way more done. And I wish I had known that on day one because I probably would have been really gracious in that, in that um, happy hour. And I have no idea what would have happened from there. You know, absolutely no idea. And I still got a ton out of it. I, I still got invited to all these great judges' houses and... I don't think anybody thought I was a bad guy, but it, but it hurt, you know, and it, and it just happened at the end of the semester. So I didn't really have any time to like get my momentum back, but what, what a great question. Thank, thank you for asking that. Of course. That's, that's what we're here to do, man. As ask the, uh, ask the stuff that I don't think anybody's getting asked. That was a Tim Ferriss special though. I do have to say that tribe of mentors, but I know we have a few final questions. One thing we wanted to ask you, you know, you've given us so many great pieces of advice, but do you think that there's a certain piece of advice that is like especially overrated or something that you think college students can kind of ignore and that they should not really be taking that piece of advice? Oh, my God. <laughs> how, how long have you guys got? <laughs> <laughs> You're dealing with two pros here, man. So we're, we're, we're asking you the, the really tough ones. Hmm. That's really, really tricky because there's so many. 
maybe I'll segment it over the student experience. Number one is you meet your best friends at college. That is an absolute lie. An absolute lie. You're going to live for 90 to 100 years. You spend four years of a very confused part of your life trying to become a man and a woman. And you think the people you meet during that period of time are somehow going to stick around? Absolutely not. The second piece of advice is college are the best days of your life. Also an absolute lie. I tell all these stories fondly. Uh, I love South Bend. But the best day of my life is tomorrow. And I've always believed that. And I've worked to make that a reality. So when I was graduating and, you know, at that celebratory week that all the men and women have right before graduation and people were like, wow, I just can't believe it. Like it's all over. You're 22 and and you're acting like that. I mean, that is just tragic. I'd say myth number three is that you don't have to make it to every home football game. Like when I was of age, one of my favorite things to do was to leave at halftime, regardless how good the game was and just go sit in O'Rourke's. And be with people who lived in South Bend, you know, who are in business because of the community and really get game day through their edge. And also sitting in the bar when you can have a few drinks and you can feel the atmosphere in a tight place is just unbelievable. So I say that's a very specific one is you don't have to watch every home game. If you get cold and your legs hurt, try and find someone interesting is also in that bucket and bugger off. Go do something else. Go watch the rest of the game from elsewhere. I think number four and this is a tough one because this is this is definitely, you know, close to my heart, given all the things I've kind of shared today. I think number four for me is, you know, if you do make a mistake, whether that is academically in a class or, you know, professionally, like I shared in that story, you don't have to hide it. You, you can actually put it front and center. And I think it makes for, again, a really, really interesting conversation. So if there are people listening that think, bloody hell, that McCloskey story is just reminding me of something I've done. like. I just own up to it. Put it at the front and center. Don't let it define you. And then I think number five is like, don't think you're the finished article walking out of there. I guess I thought I knew it all at some point and I was kindly corrected at the end of my junior year. But you're always learning and and, and they like to say around these parts that Notre Dame isn't a four-year decision, it's a 40-year decision, right? What a line. Um, I'm sure Lou Nani talked about, created that one. Lovely. Shout out to Lou. He's the guy who got me to come here. But um. I think it is a 40-year decision. And so I would really think intentionally about that 40 years as 10 undergraduate careers. So what are you going to do in your second, right? Like you have one here, but what are you going to do in your second? What are you going to do in your third? What are you going to do in your fourth? And I think every time you come back, your knowledge of this place should be richer. It should be deeper. You should be more excited to be here. And then this isn't even piece of unadvice but the other piece of advice is South Bend uh, don't hang around townies South Bend doesn't have your interests in mind you, know, you want to stay up here that is a load of baloney to, to use an American term um, some of my best people and friends are actually of South Bend obviously the mayor has, has gone on to do amazing things now so maybe South Bend's cool but you got to get out into the community you got to understand what it means to be from this place and understand that Notre Dame is a separate city than South Bend they are not the same places Go out, break those barriers, create those connections, create those bridges. Don't be the the arrogant student that's just arrived and, and think they run the town. And that's been obviously a, a huge part of kind of my relationship with Darren and, and just a great perspective. Like, don't be above a few beers at Jay's Lounge, you know, over in Niles. You never know what's going to happen or come from that. And uh, yeah, I actually wish I could have spent more time, um, I think, building relationships with the people in Mayor Pete's office. Like, the fact that Mayor Pete was walking around campus when I was here is unbelievable. He was just taking walks with people around the lakes. And I probably had two conversations with him. <laughs> and now he runs all the transportation for the United States of America. Um, so here's me, Mr. Relationship Building, talking about all these great relationships. And I still didn't get it right. So, you know, Mayor Pete, if you're listening, you know, we can certainly catch up for lost time. I'm sure he's listening. Yeah. That segues nicely into... Uh you know, taking yourself into your college mode and then removing yourself and putting yourself in your mode you're in right now. What did dream job mean to you at 18? What does dream job mean to you at 26? Oh my God almighty. What a question. Wrote that one myself. <laughs> Jeez. I'm still 25, by the way, not 26 till June. I know the grades give it away though. Uh, let those go during quarantine. Dream job at 18. It was probably still to be a baller. You know, I think that's the part of the story that maybe I missed is 
I wanted to come out and I wanted to play pro ball in in the MLS. Um, I'm talking about the proper football for those listening. And so mm-hmm. Notre Dame actually won the national championship my freshman year, and and I tried to walk onto the team, but um, you know, Bobby Clark famously told me I wasn't athletic enough, which is probably true. Um, <laughs> so look again, right? Like got paired up with this you know wonderful individual from Britain that had moved to Michigan when he was eight, and uh, he was the number one scholarship player on the team. We were roommates. Uh, we were best friends at college and just actually recently reconnected, which is awesome. And uh, I thought that he, you know, was, was put in my dorm to show me how hard I'd have to work for everything that I wanted. And I don't think it would take offense to me saying this. It's like, I actually realized it was the opposite. It was to show me everything I didn't want, but thought I did. So I think dream job um, was definitely that, is make it onto the Notre Dame team, you know, put on weight, get in shape, and then maybe go and play for the MLS. And I'd be lying if I said I didn't get a call up to United one day, Manchester United on my my boyhood club. I think at 25, I I just think it's what I'm doing now, man. Like I, I love, I love what I'm doing now. McConaughey has a great quote and he, and he, and he said this in his Oscar speech, yeah. which is um, my hero is me in 10 years and, and I, and I'll, I'll never, never, ever catch him, but I'm chasing him. So I would say that's what I'm, I'm doing is, is it's my dream job is what I'm doing now, 10 years into the future. And obviously I want that tomorrow, right? Which is what I'm chasing. But I recognize that there's there's probably many things to come. Talk about that though. What talk about tell us what you're working on now. I'm working on a lot. Um I, I would say to kind of really wrap the story is if you take anything from the podcast, right? What was I doing all this time? I was telling stories. I was telling my own. Then I started telling other people's. Um and I was building businesses. So I was very, very lucky to to build a business during college. I like to say that I learned everything <laughs> everything about how not to build a business. And so, yeah, in, in um, February of 2019, I launched my own storytelling collective off the back of working with uh, a New York Times bestselling author, Keith Ferrazzi, and spending five years at this this education consulting startup with Jared. Uh, that was amazing for me. And so I kind of built it as a storytelling collective. It started as a production house that was very human-centered. It was it was really inspired by the Players' Tribune. And I was actually very lucky to count note and aim as one of my first clients. So in, in February of 2019, I worked on a Kraft Heinz deal with the CMO near Barton and I worked with Tom Schreier and Steve Reifenberg and Chris Stevens and the Provost Office with Jim Morrison on the Inspired Leadership Initiative. I highly recommend you guys check that out, especially if you have, you know, elder friends, parents, mentors who, who might want to come back and, and get an Irish education. And then, yeah, it really spun into, I started with content. I think EE spun into kind of community. So I, I revived a... Um, a social mutual improvement club called the Junto, which was uh, founded by Benjamin Franklin in 1727 and ended up becoming the, the group that created, you know, the first lending library, the, the oldest institution in America, the library company, and actually the academy that created the University of Pennsylvania. So I really felt like that could be a vehicle through which I could kind of unite people, make sure they were focused on evergreen conversations and ideas and tell stories. And then this year, I've really entered into the education space. So on the front page of AE, it says, you know, we help visionaries tell stories through content, community, education. And so what I say right now is I'm kind of building a modern day university, a university with no real estate. It's based on curiosity. And so I effectively run a, a lifestyle accelerator called Breakouts. And, and we have a, you know, a fellowship that's attached to that called the school. And what we're really looking to do is find 100 individuals every year who are incredibly curious, are content but not complacent, and really want to live the life that only they can and operate at this thing that Reid Hoffman coined, so did Ray Dalio, called their circle of competence. So the space where their assets, aspirations, and market realities intersect. So I would say I spend a lot of my time helping people work through that, helping them craft a story around activating those opportunities, but most importantly, helping them getting to know themselves and actually the individuals that can that can activate the things that they want. And I think that really comes back to what I learned to do at ND is people help me do that for myself. Now I'm trying to share that with as many people as I can. And I think the vehicles of, of content community education are, are excellent. And it, it feels like that's kind of where institutions like the Career Center are moving, which is very exciting to me because I, I think that is the, the kind of cutting edge of education. I think we have one final question for you. Okay. And that's going to be, 
what did we not ask you that you wish we would have? Oh, my God. These questions are unbelievable. <laughs> Olivia wrote that one. Final stretch. You guys are going to put me out of a job. I don't, <laughs> I don't ask questions as, <laughs> as good as this. Honestly, I, I think I want to say this. I, I think you probably didn't ask me about, you know, my relationship with my girlfriend. And I, and I think that that is, that's massive for me because Monica was the first person to ever listen to my ideas. Late night, 3 a.m., you know, in the dining hall, in the library, club has. And she was actually the, the person that made me feel like I belonged, you know, in that kind of freshman, sophomore year transition. And once I knew I had that emotional support, all of this other stuff I'm talking about came really naturally. But as I'm sure many of the listeners know um, who are tuning in, that if you don't have that, it's almost like trying to build a house on quicksand. So I would say, like, yes, take from this episode, hopefully some really helpful advice around storytelling, getting to know yourself, building relationships. But remember, like, you are only as good as the five people that are around you. And, and that one person that you choose to spend time with is absolutely massive. And I don't think if I had had that, I wouldn't have been as confident in myself. And so I don't think I would have been able to achieve these things. I don't mention her nearly enough in the interviews that I do. And I actually think that it's a massive part of the story. So so props to you guys for that question. Well, I've, I've had the privilege of spending a lot of time with you and Monica Bull. And I think that one thing, you know, my wife agrees with Monica on is uh, being with guys like us can be difficult, but a lot of fun. And I think we both agree we couldn't do anything without them. And she's fantastic. She might be, maybe it could be a Jenna and Monica episode on the next one just to say, hey, everything <laughs> these guys talk about is yeah. annoying all the time. Well, that's, the, that's the thing. And, and again, I'm trying to put the student's position, like don't, don't come away and be like, bloody hell, I haven't found the one. And that's the, that's the secret. But just be on the lookout. And I, and I would say, if you do the things that we're talking about in the coffees, this isn't turning into dating advice, is it? If you do the things I'm talking about, in the coffees, in the meetings, through the classes. Like that also applies to your social life. It should be exactly the same way you run your social life. There should be no difference between how you run your professional life and your personal life, in my opinion. Because then you're living two separate lives. You just have half the time to build a great one. So I think thinking about those virtues of courage, of honesty, those things should perpetuate absolutely everything. And then you're going to become really good at those things. And and, and you're going to be able to do shit. That, sorry, you're going to be able to do things that other people can't do. You're going to be able to do things that other people can't do. And that's massive. That's the edge. And, and yeah, I, I, I got to say, like, if I hadn't have had that, I'm not sure I would have stayed at the university, which yeah. is mad. Yeah. It's absolutely crazy to think about that. Yeah. And, it's, and it's in those fine margins and moments that I think there's all the intrigue and the interest. Well... Cornelius, thank you so much. We thank were you. so happy to have you today, our first official guest. So thank you so much. This is all so helpful advice. And just to hear you speak about your experiences, you've had such a unique experience here at Notre Dame and you have a lot coming up in the future. So thank you for speaking with us. And we look forward to see what you're going to be accomplishing soon. My pleasure. Thank you very much, buddy. It's fun to take, uh, you know, our nightly chats on the air yeah hopefully it hopefully it impacts some people i really appreciate the time man thanks for coming all the way down to south bend thank you guys for the platform and the opportunity and um i think what you're doing is incredible i mean when i was at school i would never have dreamed of being able to listen to a a career center podcast that you know is run by a student and so yeah i can't wait to see where you guys are a year from now and I hope all your guests are a lot smarter than me. That's all I can say. Oh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> this is fun, buddy. Thank you. And a special thank you to our producer, Gabby, yeah. uh, for helping put all this together behind the scenes. Cheers, guys.